Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, I'm Daniel Mason. Um, I'm a missionary here with Crew. Um, we're just so excited you're here tonight. Before we dive in, before we dive in, um, will y'all just please bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, Lord, I just pray that tonight um, you would show us what your word really is. God, I pray that we would understand the Bible, we'd understand your word, we'd understand you more clearly. God, I just pray if there's been any walls, intellectual, spiritual, emotional walls, Um, that have been built up towards your word, any lies that have caused us to build up walls and other people towards your word, I pray, God, that tonight they would fall. In your name, amen. Amen. Hey, guys, again, I'm Daniel, uh, and uh, I'm a missionary here with Crew. Um, But, and if y'all, some of y'all know me, um, some of y'all have met me. Um, If you know me pretty well, you know I love to preach. Uh, Vocationally, I'm a preacher. Before, woo. Um, it's crowded up here. Um, before uh, I came down here in, with crew, I was actually uh, a preacher, a pastor up in New Jersey for four years. Um, so those of you who know me know I love to preach. Tonight, however, we're going to do something a little different. Tonight, I'm going to take off my preacher hat and I'm going to put on my teacher hat. Um, I got asked by the staff, hey, Daniel, tonight we need you to teach, not preach. Um, Let me also explain what I was doing up in New Jersey. I was preaching, uh, but I also got a really cool opportunity. Uh, When I was here at UGA 10 years ago, I um, got a really unexpected scholarship opportunity and was able to uh, take on a triple major with a minor. Um, And while I was here, the three, the four things that I studied uh, were communications, anthropology, and religion, and then I minored in Spanish with a focus in linguistics. And the reason I did all that was because I find religion fascinating, and I wanted to study academically, really dive deep into studying how does religion work, what's the history, sociology, psychology of religion. I wanted to really understand its ins and outs, especially my own religion, Christianity, right? Uh, I wanted to understand how it worked. And then, again, when I graduated, I got this really cool opportunity. Um, Princeton offered me a scholarship, and so I went up there um, and got to study at Princeton for three years um, and get a master's uh, in religious study. And then I got another unexpected gift. Really didn't deserve this one. Uh, But they said, hey, we'll pay uh, 98% of your tuition if you stay for an extra year and get another master's in this religion studies. Um, So this is academically my area of expertise. This is what I've been studying for eight years of my life, just invested in. And so tonight, I want to take off the preacher hat for a minute, put on the teacher hat, and and tonight, if you'll join me, I want to dive into something academic. I want to dive into this question. See, we're going through this series of talks we're calling Asking for a Friend. Right, asking for a friend. And we're diving into these questions. Uh, what, when we poll UGA students, what are the five most common questions that UGA students get about why do you believe what you believe? And Christian students in the room, I want you to hear this. This is why we value these questions. In 1 Peter 3, Peter's talking to the church and he says, always be prepared. Christians, you should always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
and do so with gentleness and respect. You should always have a response ready to give. It doesn't mean you need the right answer, but you need an answer. It needs to be clear. It needs to be well thought of, and it needs to be given with gentleness and respect towards the person you're giving with. That's a biblical principle. If you're a Christian student in this room, that's why we value this. Uh, if you're a seeker in this room, if you're a non-believer, if you uh, hate Christianity or don't like it or are weirded out by it, here's why we're doing this for y'all. Uh, in, uh, his word, when, in his own words, when Jesus was speaking, someone asked him about who he was and what he was, and he said, I am the truth, and the truth will set you free. Again, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus had this principle. He said, I want you to inquire. I want you to ask questions. And we're convinced here that if you really ask the questions, if you really approach them, I'm convinced, not as a preacher, not as a missionary, but as an academic who spent eight years of his life studying this at the highest institution of learning in my field, I'm convinced if you seek out the answers, if you ask the hard questions, you will find Jesus at the end of that tunnel. It happened for me, and I'm convinced it will happen for you. And so again, tonight, some of y'all know I love to preach, but tonight we're not going to preach. Tonight I'm going to teach, as an academic, some of the truths that I found in my study. Um, And tonight we're diving into the specific question, how can you take the Bible literally? How can you take the Bible literally? Now, uh, first and foremost, I don't like this question, or at least I don't like the way it's phrased. Okay, bear with me, guys. I was, I was an English nerd before I started taking on all my social science stuff. I've always been a nerd. Um, so here's a better way of saying this question, and a question in a way you've probably heard it. Um, you might have heard this question, how can you take the Bible literally? You've probably heard it this way a little bit more specifically. How can you take the Bible seriously? Right? You've probably gotten that question. To understand the answer to that question, though, I think you have to ask another one, right? Okay, so bear with me. We're, we're going inception here. We're changing the question on the question, right? Okay, first, how can you take the Bible literally? Well, let's ask what you're really asking. How can you take the Bible seriously? And to understand the answer to that question, you must ask another one. What actually is the Bible? What actually is the Bible? What, what am I holding in my hands when I hold a Bible. Uh, let's answer that question. Now, real quick, what I wanted to begin with, um, if you'll bring it up on the slide, um, here are a couple reasons why I've been convinced when I hold a Bible, I'm holding God's Word. A couple of reasons. We're not going to be able to dive into almost any of them. <laughs> so I put this up here because, again, and I'm, I know it's funny, right? Um, but I put them up here for this reason. I'm going to go through these very briefly but I want you to end this time as we're going through these reasons unsatisfied. Again, we want you to ask the questions. My prayer is that when I get to the end of the next five to 10 minutes, which is less than half of this talk, that you say that wasn't enough, that you Google it, that you start to look it up, that you start to ask professors because I'm convinced you'll find Jesus at the end of this tunnel. All right, here are a couple of things that have convinced me the Bible is the Word of God. First and foremost, archaeology. Um, You'll see up there I mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. So uh, 50, 60 years ago, uh, if someone was up here answering this question, uh, the most common answer you would have gotten on a a college campus is uh, to, to why people don't take the Bible seriously. They would have said it was just a couple of religious fables, 
or propaganda, made-up stories. Uh, archaeology, remember, I'm, uh, background's in anthropology. One of the subsets of anthropology is archaeology, so trained archaeologist. I'm a terrible archaeologist, but I'm trained in it. Um, uh, archaeology had an amazing discovery, actually the greatest archaeological dig of the 20th century. Uh, in 1957, it was called the Dead Sea Scroll Discovery. And what we discovered was the most well-preserved dig of the 20th century. Guess what it was? It was an ancient collection of manuscripts of the Bible, perfectly maintained, absolutely perfectly maintained, in a cave right beside the Dead Sea. And what they found was carbon dated it and did linguistics um, studies on them, right? Did forensics on it, just like any archaeologist, like, just like any anthropologist would do. What they found was it essentially verified the dates, the times, the places, and the names of the people described in the historical portions of the Bible. If this, the parts of this that claim to be history are historical to date, that doesn't mean you have to believe them religiously, but it's pretty powerful. Again, I'll let you look that up for yourselves. Um, the gospel eyewitnesses. Okay, so if you look in the New Testament, the first four books, I would say five books, um, one of the books is called Luke Acts. It's a two-parter, and for some reason they put John in between it. I don't know why. Don't ask me why. I wasn't in the church councils. Um, okay, I, I didn't, I didn't. They, they, when they were collecting these things, I don't know, sometimes they, anyway, whatever. Okay, so there's these five, four and a half, five books we call the Gospels, right? The Gospel means good news. That literally just means good news. And these four um, collections, what they, what they are, and they, they talk about this in the introduction to each of these four collections, they're collections of eyewitness accounts of what people saw and experienced as they walked and talked and lived and experienced Jesus of Nazareth, the historical figure. All right, each and every one of these was written either by someone who lived alongside Jesus for at least three years and watched him live, do ministry, work, die, and all of them claim to have experienced him after death. And they named people who back in the day when these were written, you could go to to reference them. The only reason someone names someone you can go to to talk about is if they really believe it. All right. In fact, Luke, Luke the third of those gospels, literally he goes in and, and owns this. He says, I collected hundreds of eyewitness testimonies and he names almost a hundred of them. People he's like, oh yeah, you can go down the street and talk to them. You can talk to them. You can talk to them. The only time you name people is if they're going to corroborate your story. Why would he do this if it didn't really happen? It's kind of terrifying. Uh, the second thing, I put this subset under there, is the martyrs. Okay, there's this phrase, martyrdom. It means to die for what you believe in. Each and every one of the authors of these Gospels, we have the historical documents literally recording their deaths and the way they died. Each and every one of them was killed by Rome or by the religious leaders of their Jewish culture for their belief in Jesus, for their writing these down. And when they were killed, they weren't just killed, they were tortured to death. And as they were tortured, they were told over and over again, if you simply recant your gospel, your writings, we will let you live. Each and every one of them looked their torturers in the eyes and said, you cannot kill me. I've seen a man get up from the grave. That should count for something. People don't die for what they haven't experienced. 
you have to reckon with that. But again, I'll let you research that on your own. Lastly, miracles, testimonials. Okay, I'm going to preach for this one. I'm going to stand up for like a half a minute. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to give... Testimonial is a fancy word that means story. Uh, It's what we use in the court of law. And um, one of the primary reasons when I'm talking with students, especially students who aren't, again, I'm just, I'm not trying to sound like high convoluted, but students who aren't educated in this area. Again, this is like, this is what I studied for eight years of my life. Um, When I talk to people, not just students, but people who aren't educated in this area of life uh, or in this area of study, a lot of times one of the biggest reasons I get that why could you, you can't take the Bible seriously are miracles, right? It's got miracles. It's got the supernatural. And I want to just push back on this. Over 6,000 years of recorded human history, we have over a trillion testimonials, meaning verified, witnessed narratives, over a trillion testimonials of people experiencing the supernatural in such a way that it changed their life forever. In fact, the belief in the supernatural as just a given because of the amazing amount of narratives of the supernatural was considered just an assumed reality until and only in one area of the world tried to change that, and that was the European Enlightenment. Uh, About 300 years ago, During an era we called the European Enlightenment, a bunch of white European ethnocentric men decided that if something, I'm sorry if I sound super biased, but this is just, it's just real, y'all. A bunch of uh, white men, European men, who had only experienced their own culture and only experienced their own way of living and only experienced their own system, decided that if something bore something supernatural in it, it was just de facto not true. Ignoring the testimonials of Thousands of other cultures of trillions of testimonies over 6,000 recorded years of human history, they decided if it has something mystical, magical, spiritual, supernatural, it just can't be true. And they had a very heavy way on how we do education here in the West. But they're ignoring a trillion stories, testimonials, many that people died for just doesn't necessarily add up. In fact, if you pulled this room today, you'd still find testimonials of the supernatural changing people's lives. If you looked up and researched the last 20, 30 years of human history, you'd still find millions of testimonials of the supernatural transforming people's lives. Right now, if you study uh, the highest security, the history of the highest security prison in China right now, you'd find there's only one person who's ever escaped before or since. His name's Brother Yun. His autobiography is in a book called The Heavenly Man. And in it, he records a bunch of miracles, one of which was how he escaped from the highest security prison in the east, in the eastern portion of the globe. He says, I heard the voice of God. The door opened. I walked out. I walked out past hundreds of guards because God closed their eyes, I walked out past an open courtyard with a hundred guards aimed with rifles, ready to shoot anyone in a prison garment. I walked out, I flagged a taxi, and God got me out. That's his testimony. That's his story. If you pull uh, the stats for where Christianity is actually growing fastest in the world right now, you'll find it's in Iran. Uh, For the last five years, Iran has had a minimum of 1% of their population, between 1% and 2% of their population, convert to Christianity every year, and that number's only growing. 
If you poll, we have done this. Um, there's actually a documentary I'll tell you right now. Um, the documentary is called uh, Sheep Amongst Wolves. Sheep Amongst Wolves. If you want a really entertaining documentary, they'll blow your mind. Sheep Amongst Wolves. Um, if you ask them, when you ask the Iranians, when you poll them, what's the primary reason, what's the most common reason why people in a country that will legally, are legally, uh, will be beheaded if they convert from their cultural religion, why they're converting by the thousands, tens of thousands to Christianity, the majority of them will tell you, I had a miraculous experience, Jesus saved my life, Jesus healed me from a sickness, I tried to commit suicide and God got me out, I had a vision, something happened, supernatural, and because of that, I know God's real. So I converted and I'm risking my life and my family's life. That's the only reason why. It's a very dangerous thing, a very ethnocentric thing, to blow off the testimony of a trillion people, the story of a trillion people over 6,000 years, including our modern day, just because your way of thinking is challenged by it. That is all I will say for that. I'm sitting back down now. All right. Let me explain to you, though, the biggest reason why I see people not taking the Bible seriously or being challenged by taking the Bible seriously. It's what we call genre. What we call genre. Okay, let me explain. When you actually hold up this Bible, you're not actually holding up one book. You're holding up 66. These are 66 books collected over almost depending on who you ask, between 4,000 and 6,000, again, archaeology dates, forensics, it gets a little confusing, between 4,000 and 6,000 years of human history. Um, here, let me, if you can put up the slide. There is your Bible. That's actually what you're looking at when you're looking at a Bible, okay? Notice it's not just like one thing. It's not even just 66 individual books. They're actually organized by their genre. So when you read this through, you'll notice they're, they're organized by the genre, meaning the, the, the way that they were written and the, the focus or the foci of what, that, sorry, that sounds so, fo so like convoluted, the focus of why they were written, right? So you see here, you've got the law. Another way of saying that is Torah, if you speak Hebrew, or Pentateuch, if you speak Greek, right? Um, this is the ethnic identity. These are the stories, the narratives, the histories, uh, actually the law codes that defined the identity of the people of God about 6,000 years ago, right? And it's, it's recordings of the things that defined their identity. Uh, you've got the histories. Those are written as histories. These are the histories of God's people, uh, the Israelites, uh, over the course of about mm, two to 3,000 years. You've got uh, the poetry. Notice that it's called poetry. Okay, poetry is not supposed to be taken seriously. It's metaphor. This is a bunch of uh, poetic writings that communicate truth through metaphor in different ways. Some of them are songs. We talked about the Psalms. There are a bunch of songs. Proverbs, which are like wise sayings. There's some other stuff in there. Um, and then prophecy, right? Recordings of, of people experiencing God, things like that. Uh, and then you've got the New Testament. We talked about the Gospels and then these things called the letters. Basically, those are letters written by church leaders who were trying to keep their, their people together in the midst of violent persecution. Again, for the first 250 years of Christian history, every single Christian began their faith under threat of death. And these are letters from the church leaders uh, to the church on how to be Christians in spite of the fact that people are trying to kill you. This is your Bible. This is what you're looking at. Now, again, you can keep moving. If you, you can take that down. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Mads. Um, if you read these things out of their genre, 
you will miss what they're saying. Let me give an example of, of reading something out of genre in our modern day. All right, we talked about poetry, right? Poetry is metaphorical. Um, when I listened to a, a wonderful work of poetry by a woman named Katy Perry, and she tells me, baby, you're a firework, I don't take her literally. I know it's a poet. It's, she's a poet. She's communicating a truth through metaphor and symbolism. So if I were to try and take her, like, literally, I'd be taking her out of context. I'd be abusing her song. Her song is trying to say there's something special in you, and that's sweet. Um, but she's trying to say, you know, there's something special in you, and you're, you're great, right? If I tried to take her in, in a literal format, I'd be abusing her song, right? I'd be ignoring and abusing the message and the value and the weight of what she's trying to tell me. The same is true when you try and take any passage of scripture out of its genre. And this is the most common difficulty I've actually found when students, both Christian and non-Christian, read and talk about scripture. How can you take scripture seriously? Well, if you don't know what you're reading, right? Again, what's the most important question? What's the Bible? If you don't know what you're reading, yeah, it's really hard to take seriously. But once you know what you're reading... It's impossible not to. Let me give, just, I want to dive in for, for, for whatever little time I have left. I want to dive into the most common example of what I mean when I say genre. You need to understand genre when, when you read scripture or you'll abuse what it's actually saying. Uh, this gets out. When I, when I talk to students about why they struggle to take the Bible seriously, the first passage that always comes up, the first thing that always comes up is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis Chapter 1. Oh, thanks. Not yet, guys. We'll get there in a second. Um, okay, Genesis chapter 1. Yeah, you can keep it up there, I guess. Um, so in Genesis chapter 1, bless y'all. Like I said, this is, we're, we're trying something different. Okay, when you read Genesis chapter 1, now there's something you really important, and this is often why it gets confused. Hebrew is a poetic language, meaning it has like different tenses and tones to communicate to you the, what it's trying to say. So literally, when I talk about genre, you can literally read something. If you read Hebrew, which is one of the things I learned up in New Jersey, um, if you can read Hebrew, you know immediately whether it's trying to make a point about history or whether it's trying to make a metaphor or a song, right, a symbolic point. This passage here, if you read Hebrew and you read Genesis chapter 1, the first thing you'll note is it's in the poetic tense. Hard poetic tense meaning this is a song, this is a poem, this is symbolism, claiming to be symbolism, claiming to be poetry, not to be taken literally any more than a song by Katy Perry. And to take it literally is to take it out of the context it was written in, is actually to abuse it. It's to try and make it say something it was never trying to say. I'll take it one step further. If you study, and I know so many of you guys are going to just be like, of course. Like, um, but uh, if you study ancient Mesopotamian creation myths, which, you know, I'm assuming all of you guys do. You know, it's like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Ugarit Rit, right? Okay. Um, if you guys study ancient uh, Mesopotamian Rit, you'll know something funny is that there are at least six, most people would say 12, what they call creation myths. Other poems written in the poetic language 
written in poetic language, communicating the philosophy and the theology, the views of, the, of creation that those ancient peoples had. And you know what's funny? They all involve seven days. As an anthropologist, when you read this passage, there's nothing special about the seven days. They're not trying to make a point. When God was inspiring this word in Genesis, he wasn't trying to make a point about how long it took him to create something. The point he's trying to make, the point he inspired people to make when he told them right in the poetic tense was how he made it, why he made it, who it was who actually made everything. And to make it say something that it doesn't is an abuse. If you're not a Christian, if you're a seeker, I want you to hear this. If a Christian's told you you can't be a Christian because you believe in the scientific method, and if you do scientific study, it tells you that the world was created and it took longer than seven days, I am so sorry. I am so, so sorry. Christians in this room, I assume it was from ignorance. If you have ever told someone that they have to ignore scientific data to have faith in the God who made them, you're really ignoring the fact that the guy who created the scientific method was a guy by the name of Sir Isaac Newton who read this passage and said, look how orderly God created the universe. I bet there are laws to govern it. Let me figure out if I can figure this out. Science was inspired by this passage. Science didn't exist when this passage was written. Don't make it something it's not. It's an abuse of God's word. What I want you to see is how and why God did this. Will y'all put that up? I want you to see the first and the sixth day in this poem. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was void and formless, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Waters represented chaos and madness to the ancient people. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God said, saw the light and he saw it was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And the darkness he called night and the light he called day. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. There's a one God. That's what it's saying. There's one God in a world where people thought there was a multitude of gods and they were imperfect and they were just as broken as the people who they governed over. They said there's one and he loves what he makes. He makes order. He makes light. He's the kind of God who can write principles and laws that we can interpret through science into the world he makes. Read with me. This is day six. This is starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man or humanity in our image just after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created humanity in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You know, the ancient Mesopotamian creation myths all agreed on one thing. The gods were broken, just as broken as humanity. The earth 
was a random happenstance and human beings were a cosmic mistake. In fact, if you read the Ugarit, the Ugarit's my, my favorite, it's kind of gross. Um, they literally believed, the Ugarits believed, they have a seven-day creation story. In it, when the gods create man, it's a cosmic accident. Uh, one of the gods sneezes. A goddess had her mouth open when he sneezed. The booger flew in. And then she spat out that cosmic loogie, and it popped on the ground, and out came humanity. They believed humans were a cosmic accident. And because of that, they used that to justify chattel slavery, the oppression of women. They used it to justify unbelievable abuse because you were just a cosmic accident. There is no meaning in the universe. And in the midst of this, God reveals his word. In Genesis, I made you with purpose. You're made in my image. You're my child. There's order and there's wonder. It's so different. And the point is not the timeline. If you take it out of its genre, you abuse it. I want to encourage you, again, like I said, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons to take this seriously. But I want to urge you to hear the words it's trying to tell you. Not that the world was created in seven days, but that you were made with purpose, that God made you in his image, that he loves you, and he wants to know you. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I pray, God, oh, Lord, if there's any walls that have been built up, if there's any walls we have built up from people understanding your word and being able to access it, your very words, I pray, God, that you'd break down those walls. I pray for those who still aren't satisfied with the answers, that they would seek them and find you. I pray, God, for those of us who've built up walls to other people accessing your truth. I pray, God, you'd break those down. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Let us encounter you, the God who loves us and made us. Amen.